It is so good to once again though, gather around God's word and to see, well, your eyeballs. In the former session where people were going outside and taking off their masks, I, it was beautiful. It was like beholding the Shekinah glory in people's faces. But for now, all I can see is your eyes. Let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 66. Today we are starting a new series, as you can see on the screen, our Gospel DNA and Culture, and it is a series we have been looking forward to for some time. You know, the first time I ever went into a Sovereign Grace Church uh, was in 1997. In 1997, I went over to the United States for a visit, and I encountered a Sovereign Grace Church, and I was blown away by what I encountered It was quickly apparent that amongst these people and amongst the leaders, there were certain cultural markers in what they stood for. And so there was humility and there was godliness and there was gratefulness. I'd never been thanked for coming to church so much in my entire life. And people were just constantly thanking each other. Thanks for serving today. Thanks for the way you preached today. Thanks for what you spoke. It's like, man, people are truly very grateful in this church. And then there was service and generosity and fellowship. It was clear this church really loves being together. It isn't just a service. This is a family and this is tight. People are doing life together and they feel privileged to even be a part. And then throughout the whole thing, there was profound joy. This church, this Sovereign Grace Church, was just one happy place. They clearly enjoyed being together, and there was great joy in the Lord and joy in one another. When I first set foot in a Sovereign Grace Church, it was clear that there is a culture of humility and godliness and gratefulness and service and generosity and fellowship and joy. And what also became clear as I began to press in on that and seek to understand that is this gospel culture came out of their gospel DNA. Christ and him crucified was everything in this local church. So you heard a lot about Jesus. They sang about Jesus. They preached about Jesus. They prayed about Jesus. Everything was about knowing and applying and proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a result, the culture was humility and joy and gratitude and service and so on and so forth. And those things to me completely blew me away. They were so attractive because to me they displayed the beauty and the splendor of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It was tangible and I wanted to be like it. I was drawn to it like a moth to a light. It was attractive. And so for the last 39 years in Sovereign Grace churches all across the world, These gospel cultures have always been valued. It doesn't matter what church you go to in Sovereign Grace, whether it be in Liberia or whether it be in the Philippines or whether it be here in the UK, you get amongst the Sovereign Grace Church and you can kind of tell pretty quick it's a Sovereign Grace Church because they talk a lot about Jesus and there's a humility and a joy and a godliness. These values are taught. And one of the privileges I have as the Director of Emerging Nations for Sovereign Grace is we teach on these values around the world. We talk about them and help them understand them. We don't just go with a statement of faith and seven shared values and you're like, oh, you take the box, great, you can be a Sovereign Grace Church. No, we talk about culture, humility, joy, gratitude, service, all these things that are markers and extensions of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And for the last 10 years, that is what we were seeking to build into us as a local church as well here in Australia. They're important 
values for us. They display the splendor and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thought 10 years on, as a pastoral team, it would be good to once again preach and teach through these most important cultural values. For some of you, you're old timers. You've been here for like ever. You were here when the trailer existed. Yeah, the ones that are giggling, remember those days. It was hard days. But I trust as we re-preach through these things, it comes to you totally fresh. That God encounters you in this and reminds you, this is why we do what we do. And for those of you that are new, that have joined us in the last 10 years, I pray that this blesses you as you understand who we are as a local church. But more important than that, you understand what God is actually looking for in his word in the life of a local church which is what we've been trying to build all along. So today we are going to look at humility, which is the title for this message, Humility. And we're going to see why that is such an important value in God's word and why it is such an important part of our culture that in Sovereign Grace Churches. So we're going to read the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 66. This is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around this text, Lord, I I sense afresh today we are on holy ground. Lord, when we gather around your word, we are being addressed by you, Yahweh, the Lord, the great I am. Lord, in the same way you spoke to Moses from the burning bush, you are speaking to us today from your word, quickening our gaze, quickening our hearts, inclining our ears. So Lord, as we gather around your word today, Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Would the Holy Spirit do what only he could do? Would he open the eyes of our hearts that we may see this? And that we may be changed and affected for your glory so that ever increasingly, humility may be what you see in us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Israelites in Isaiah chapter 66 had so much. They are being addressed by God and they had so much to work with. They had a unique identity as the people of God. And they had the Torah and they had the law of God and the covenant and the temple. They had so much. But humility, they did not have. And so in God's mercy and his grace, he draws their attention here away from their prideful assumption as his chosen people and away from their preoccupation with the many trappings of religion. And instead describes for them the one to whom I will look. The one who will capture his attention. The one who he will look at with active and gracious attention. 
And the one to whom he will look is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. And I so thank God then for this text. I mean, how kind of him that 2,007 years ago he would address the Israelites like this, understanding their preoccupation with pride, understanding their preoccupation with who they are, instead drawing their gaze off themselves to him and helping them understand this is the one to whom I will look. How kind of the Lord to do that for them and how kind of the Lord to do that for us. These verses aren't in the Bible to just give us a piece of history where we can go, that's really nice, really interesting that happened all that time ago. No, they're here because God still speaks today through his word. God has not changed. His gaze still looks on at exactly the same things. And what it is then that captures his gaze, what it is that draws his gaze like a magnet is humility. And so I have three points this morning that are going to help us to unpack this quest of humility. Number one, the perils of pride. If we don't understand the antithesis of humility and how God feels about that, humility will never dazzle us as we should. Number two, then, the prize of humility. I want you to see just how glorious humility is as biblically defined and what the promise and prize of it really are. And then finally, we will look at purposeful application. I don't want to leave you hanging, wanting humility, but having no idea how to actually cultivate it in your life. So that's where we'll conclude. And, but I have really one hope. Here's my hope this morning for all of us. My hope is that we would all position ourselves then to be the one to whom he will look. Point one, the perils of pride. It would appear that the Israelites have many things going on for them at this point in time, but humility is not one of them. That's the background to this whole text. And it would appear as you examine the Bible that pride has indeed quite the history. See, pride precedes even Adam and Eve. In fact, it was the first sin ever displayed in the known universe. And so Isaiah chapter 14, we see about Satan's rebellion against God. And we discover in the verses there what really motivated Satan to rebel against God. And so Isaiah 14 verse 13, we read, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. And that's exactly what happened in Satan's heart. He set his throne on high. And so led by Satan himself, an entire army of powerful angelic creatures possessing beauty and glory far beyond anything we could have ever asked or imagined, craving, desiring recognition and status equal to God himself, led a rebellion against God. And God then in response dealt swiftly And severely with them, he judged them and removed them from the entirety of his presence for all eternity. But the first sin, what was it? Pride. I want status and I want recognition equal to God himself. Pride appears to be the first known sin in history. Likewise, pride appears to be the essence of all sin. John Stott says it this way. He says, pride is more than just the first of the seven deadly sins. 
It is in itself the essence of all sin. And so it is, when you examine the storyline of the Bible, you realise pride isn't just like the first of sins, it's actually the essence of all of them. It's what drives nearly all of our sins. And accordingly then, pride before the Lord appears to be the most serious of sins. Now, as I say that, you might be thinking, what do you mean serious sins? Does it mean it's like God sort of scores sins or something? How does this really work? Listen, all sin is abhorrent before the Lord. God hates all sin. And yet, I believe there is biblical evidence abounding to us that God hates nothing more than pride. Because you just have to read the tone of what he's saying. And so in Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 17, for example, when the world reveals that the things when the, sorry, the word reveals the things that the Lord hates the most, and what are an abomination to him, it's the proud man's haughty eyes that head up the list. You always need to pay attention in the Bible at the first thing on the list. And what is the first thing on the list? Pride. Haughty eyes. Proverbs 8, verse 13. God addresses us directly and says, you know what I hate? You hate vegetables? Uh Uh-huh. I hate pride and arrogance. And then Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. My friends, stronger language for sin simply cannot be found in Scripture. God hates pride. It is an abomination before him. Nothing offends him more than pride. And why is that the case? Why does God hate pride so much? Here's why. Because pride, as Charles Bridges once wonderfully said, pride is contending with God for supremacy. That's what pride is. And we're discussing pride and you wonder what it is. Pride is contending with God for supremacy. It's not contending to ensure that he receives all the glory. It wants glory for itself. It's not contending with him receiving worship and being noticed. It wants to be noticed. Pride, by very nature, contends with God for his supremacy. And sadly, pride is in the very air we breathe to this day, is it not? The world reeks of pride. It stinks of pride. The world does not bow the knee to God saying, all I have in heaven is you. The world says, I don't even want you. I want nothing to do with you. And so the world boasts. The world specializes in ostentation. The world specializes in self-promotion. It's all about bringing glory to itself because we don't want anything to do with him and any sense of bowing the knee to him and relying on him, being aware that he is the one that gives me life and breath and everything else. No, we reject that notion from the start. You are nothing to me. And so people all the time, they effectively set themselves up as equal to God. Autonomous, just like him. Worthy of praise, just like him. Pride, by very nature, is contending with God for supremacy. And I would love to tell you that pride is just out there in the world. And then when you become a Christian, it's gone. But it's not, has it? 
We become a Christian, we become a new creation, the Holy Spirit comes to live in our hearts. It's wonderful. But the old self is still in there, isn't it? So the new self, it really wants to walk humbly and honour the Lord. But the old self, pride is still a challenge. And so self-glorification, for example, which in essence is what pride is all about. Self-glorification then is about boasting, it's about promoting, and it's wanting people to see you. And here's what tends to happen as a Christian sometimes is our common temptation and tendency. We begin by genuinely, before the Lord, all we want to do is point the finger to him, isn't it? We understand, like John the Baptist, I must decrease, but he must increase. I want to spend my life bringing glory to him. The challenge is, in our sinful flesh, the same hand that points to him has a tendency and temptation to come all the way round and start pointing to us. And so, well, what about me? And we get better at pride, we get more discreet in it more often than not sometimes not so it's just blatant and in your face but we tend to get more discreet on it but it rears its head more often than not when something doesn't happen and so we're busy pointing to him but then when I don't get picked for something or I'm not involved in something or I'm not asked for something or not thanked for something my emotions are engaged and I'm irritated why am I irritated because I want some glory for me I want people to notice me. I want people to notice my gifts and my abilities. I want people to notice what I've done. I'm not really content just bowing the knee and pointing to Jesus. I want to come full circle and I want some other glory. Do you see it? It's contending with God for supremacy, understanding he is the one who's worthy of all praise. But we sneak ourselves alongside and say, I want praise too. I want it. Or indeed there is self-sufficiency. Another expression of pride. Self-sufficiency is all about independence and autonomy. It's the whole attitude in our lives of, I've got this. I've got it. And so we learn in the Bible that God says, Jesus says directly, there's nothing you can do apart from me. That would invoke, would it not, a reliance upon the Lord, a getting up in the morning and spending time with the Lord and praying to the Lord and then giving all glory to the Lord. But so often as a Christian, it can be so tempting not to get up, not to spend any time with him and live as if he's died. And all the time what we're doing is we're setting ourselves up to be just like God. He tells me there's nothing I can do apart from him, but I think there's a lot I can do apart from him. And my lifestyles can scream it. Do you see? It's contending with God for his supremacy. It's not trembling at his word. Instead, it's saying, no, 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 I'm putting myself alongside you. My friends, our pride that can sometimes be trifled with as if no big deal and I am just a bit proud could not be more serious before the Lord. He hates it. And moreover, he opposes it. And what a powerful reality that is, is it not? In 1 Peter 5, verse 5, we read, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He opposes it. The way he responds to pride in our life is he actively and inevitably and constantly opposes it. He's not going to allow his glory to be besmirched. He's not going to allow you the opportunity to worship a false god, which ironically is yourself. And so he opposes it with all his might. 
Who amongst us wants to be opposed by God? You ain't going to win. Proverbs 16 verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The potent fruit of pride is failure and destruction and opposition. Listen, the warnings of Scripture about pride could not be more serious or sobering, could they? They could not be more serious or sobering. And by the look in your eyes as I'm preaching this, you are sobered before the Lord and we all should be sobered before the Lord. But we must also understand these words of Scripture about pride could not be also any more loving or merciful. Because this is a warning, not a foregone conclusion. What God is doing by His grace is setting up a path that we will always be drawn to in our sinfulness of pride. And He's saying, listen, don't do this. Don't go along here. This is not going to go well. This will end in destruction. It will end in sorrow. It will be difficulty. I will oppose you. This is a forbidden path. But all the time, he's always setting up at the same time of a forbidden path, a prized path. Don't do that. Do this. John Stott says it this way. He says, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Isn't that wonderful? In every stage of your Christian walk, you have an enemy and your greatest enemy is pride. That temptation towards self-autonomy, self-sufficiency, self-glorification, that is your greatest enemy. What is your greatest friend? Humility. Why is it your greatest friend? Well, because of Isaiah 66, verse 2. That brings me to my second point, the prize of humility. What is the prize of humility? Pay attention. But this is the one to whom I will look. Staggering. That prize that he is describing there is astonishing and astounding and amazing in every way. See, to understand it, you have to understand the eyes of God are a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. And so, for example, in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, we read, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. The eyes of the Lord, they run to and fro throughout the whole earth. They are looking for something. Now, let's be clear so that there's be no misunderstanding. Obviously, the Lord doesn't actually have eyes. He doesn't actually have physical eyes because he is spirit. He doesn't actually need physical eyes because he is omniscient. He sees all things. He's wonderfully aware of all things. Nothing ever escapes his notice. And yet he uses this imagery here of eyes to obtain our human attention and to draw our attention to something that he loves and something that we can do in our lives that will act like a magnet to draw his special attention to it. And what is it? Humility. Humility and contriteness in spirit. And as a result, one who trembles at his word. Listen, there is something that we can do in our lives to draw the special attention of God. Make no mistake, this special attention isn't just like he turns his face and goes, that's so nice. No, this special attention is an active attention. 
It's the way it's all written. So his eye comes on that act of humility, that heart of humility, and it is an active attention. What is the active attention? Well, it is talking about assistance and favour and the profound grace of God itself. That is what we are invoking in our lives when we walk with humility and contriteness of spirit. He is promising us, I will look at that with favour, I will look at that with assistance, I will look at that with grace. Just like we read in 1 Peter 5, God opposes the proud, but what? He gives grace to the humble. He is looking for humility. And when he sees humility, he's like, I I love that. I'm going to pursue that with favour, with assistance, with special active grace. I will oppose the proud, but I will look at this with help and assistance and aid. Listen, who amongst us doesn't want that? We all want the favour of God in our lives, do we not? We all want the assistance of God in our lives. We all want to know His active grace. What a prize this is before us, all under the banner of this is the one to whom I will look. And what draws that attention like a magnet is humility. Not pride, not ostentation, not check me out, look at my gifts. I don't care about any of that. What draws my attention is humility. Humility. So what is humility? Well, C.J. Mahaney writes the following in his wonderful book, Humility. He says, Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness and then living in light of what we see. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness and then living in light of what we see. Humility then is seeing yourself in light of God's holiness and realising in light of all you are as King of kings and Lord of lords, in light of the reality that you spin the galaxies, in light of the reality that you mark off the heavens with the breadth of your hand, I understand that I am very small and you are very large and I bow my knee to you as my King of kings and Lord of lords. I realise my life has been bought with a price. I'm not just autonomous anymore to do my thing, but I'm yours, Lord. I give my heart and my soul and my life to honouring you and following you. And humility sees yourself in light of your sinfulness. You see, when we really see how sinful we really are, Often our assessment of ourselves begins to change. Often I find in my life, our assessment of ourselves is still quite high. When you ask, how do you think you're going out of 10? We're always about a seven or an eight. I'm doing pretty good. But when you actually see yourself in light of who you really are and what Jesus had to do in your place and how sin still continues to pervade in your life and work in your life against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it begins to soften your heart towards Him and it creates humility. And so when we assess ourselves in lights of God's holiness and our sinfulness and then give ourselves into trembling at his word, understanding my ways will always seem right in my own eyes, but I don't want to guarantee my ways because my ways can be sinful. Lord, I want to follow you. I want to know your ways for my life. And when we then pick our eyes up and live in light of what we see, we want to be like Jesus. See, in Philippians 2, we see that Jesus gave his life away as a ransom for many. He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he was God. But he gave his life away. Why? 
Well, in a desire to count others more significant than himself. And when we took up the cross and followed Jesus, that was the main thing we did. The main thing we do is we bow our knee and we say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to tremble in my word. And from here on in, I want to give myself to becoming like your son, which means considering others more important than myself. It's the humility then that is displayed when a dad gets home after a long day at work and instead of thinking, thank goodness I'm at home so my family can serve me, he understands, no, I'm here now in my home to serve you. To bless you. It's the humility that's being displayed in a mom as she seeks to care for these small kids that just seem to be like there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And this is so intense. But they understand, yeah, but you know what? As I bow the knee to the Lord, I want to count their needs higher than my mine, and I give myself to serving them. It's the teenager that doesn't get really upset that there's so many chores and I've had such a long day at school, but understands, no, I want to play my part and I want to count others more significant than myself and so I want to serve around the home. And it's the single who, yes, has to do so much in their own home by themselves, but doesn't just get so preoccupied with that that they have no time for anything else and wants to create time for other things like growth group and gospel community and church and friendships. Why? Because I want to consider others more important than myself and I want to serve them. I love them and know them. My friends, all those things are expressions of humility. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness and then living in light of what we see. And here's the prize. The prize then is this is the one to whom he will look. It brings the special gaze of God where he says, I love that. And he then positions attention on it with favour and grace. Who amongst us does not want that in our lives? We all want that, do we not? We should. And so, finally, point three, purposeful application. How do we do this? How do we weaken pride in our lives? And how do we cultivate humility in our lives? You see, there's a great danger when we hear a message like this to be affected by the perils of pride and think, man, I definitely don't want to go along that way. And affected by the need to cultivate humility and think, man, that is such an awesome prize that I would receive the wonderful favour and grace of God and yet still have no clue what to do with it. And it's all too possible to be like James chapter 1. We see our faces in the mirror and yet we go away and make no changes thinking that we're blessed just by hearing. And he tells us, you're not blessed by hearing. You're blessed by doing. You're blessed by going away and making some changes. So how do you weaken pride in your life and how do you cultivate humility in your life? Listen, the best book I know on that is C.J. Mahaney's book, Humility. He's the founder of our family of churches. I learned so much about humility from him and his life. I want to encourage you to get that book, buy that book. It will serve you so wonderfully well. There's a whole section in there on how to cultivate humility in your life. But for today, I nonetheless want to give you three things that if you just do these alone, they will make a profound difference in your life, I believe, and cultivate and draw the attention of God gaze at you. How do you cultivate humility? Well, here's three things. Number one, I want to encourage you to do all you can to begin your day and finish your day with the Lord. Do all you can to begin your day and finish your day with the Lord. Listen, for so many of us, our days begin with an alarm, does it not? 
Might be the radio, might be a buzzer, might be a baby crying, but there's an alarm going off somewhere. Something is happening that is getting my attention. And my experience for us in Sydney, because there is so much going on all the time, as soon as that alarm goes off, our heads go down, our bum goes up, and we are on with the day. Because we've got so much to get done. Our mind is automatically bombarded with the tyranny of the urgent. But my friends, I want to encourage you, there is nothing more urgent when that alarm goes off than you to spend time with Jesus. You see, when you spend time with Jesus, everything changes. Jesus himself says, man cannot live by bread alone. Another way of saying it is, man's not going to live by breakfast alone. You're going to need Jesus. You're going to need him. We're going to need this word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. There's no way I can live for him and take up my cross and follow him and not understand what I'm even meant to be doing. See, one of the things that's always amazed me about Jesus is he is God, right? And yet so often when the disciples get up in the morning and they're like, where's he gone? And they go looking for him and where is he? He's out in the middle of a field somewhere talking to his father. Why? Because he's aware, I need you. And yet for us as Christians 2,000 years on, we think we're fine. That's crazy. If Jesus needed to spend time with the Father, how much more do we need to spend time with the Lord? If we're going to take up our cross and follow him, we desperately need the Lord. So I want to encourage you to begin each day with the Lord, with the Lord in his word, with the Lord in prayer. There is no substitute for that. And I would argue that there's a danger that when we don't do that, what we're actually saying is, I could do this without you. I'm fine. I got this. Which we would never admit out of our mouth at gospel community, but our lives can scream it. We don't want that. Begin each day with the Lord. And while I say that, please don't misunderstand. I'm not pointing at you as if to say, this is something you need to do. I'm pointing a lot of fingers back at me because I know this can be a challenge for me. I can be bombarded with stuff. Man, I need the Lord. Begin each day with the Lord, and I want to encourage you to end each day with the Lord as well. I think sometimes we miss a moment of cultivating humility in the evenings. But to spend time just actively, even if it's just a minute, before your eyes close in sleep, say, Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you that you've been with me today. Where there's burdens that you're carrying, to cast those burdens upon the Lord. And then finish that prayer with this statement, Lord, I thank you for the gift of sleep. See, I think sometimes sleep, it is a daily reminder of humility, but we miss it because we just get used to it. But sleep is a daily reminder of humility. Listen, if you are a shift worker, Simon Wood, for example, you encounter Simon Woods after a long shift of night shifts, it is not a pretty sight. You encounter me after I've been on a long flight all the time, it's not great. Why is that? Because our bodies actually need sleep and we haven't been able to get it. We are so unimpressive. Just keep somebody awake for 48 hours and then have a chat and you will realise this is not impressive. And yet God, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. 24 hours a day, seven days a week for millennia, never even slept a wink, doesn't need to. Can be equally present in joy and passion everywhere all at the same time, never needs to rest. Take a moment before you go to sleep and remind yourself, Lord, I thank you for the gift of sleep and I thank you because it is a reminder of just how incredible you are. You don't need this. But I do. It has a wonderful shrinking effect on your life and on pride. 
Spending time with the Lord in the morning, it just doesn't, it doesn't just cultivate a relationship. It's a reminder every day of, oh, I need him. I need him every hour. I'm not going to be able to do this without him. So number one, I want to encourage you, do all you can to begin your day and finish your day with the Lord. Number two, take time to study the attributes of God, human sinfulness, and the cross. Thank you to so many of you who are making notes. I love that you make notes. That in itself is an act of humility that you want to try and apply these things at the end. I respect that. Take time to study the attributes of God, human sinfulness, and the cross. Now, the first point is a daily exercise. This is not a daily exercise. This is more of a project that I would encourage you to undergo in the next one to three years to consider I'm going to give time to studying the attributes of God, human sinfulness, and the cross. The attributes of God then. The attributes of God are on show for us here in verses 1 and 2. And they have a wonderful effect of shrinking us to our two sides. This is what he says. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. I mean, we live in a world with billions of people who are panicking about coronavirus at the minute, desperately trying to get a vaccine so we can just look after ourselves. And God says, oh, that world, that's my footstool. That's where I rest my feet. Talk about putting you in your place. And then in our pride, we have the audacity to say, I could do this. Really? I I think you're forgetting the distance that we have between us and God. (laughs) We're really not that impressive. Studying the attributes of God, so things like greatness and holiness and independence and omniscience and infiniteness and omnipresence, they have a wonderful ability of zooming the world out from our lives that we can get so consumed by to helping us see, I am just a speck of sand in the middle of the desert. But he is incredible. So read books of the Bible like Exodus and Isaiah and the Psalms and Job. Books that will just remind you, yeah, I don't think I've sent a lightning bolt on its way recently. No, I don't think I've done that. It just reminds you, he is God and I am not. Books like Bible Doctrine by Wayne Grudem and Knowing God by J.I. Packer. They have sections about the attributes of God in them. Read them, you will be amazed. And then secondarily, look at human sinfulness. Human sinfulness is important. As I said before, I think left to ourselves, we often have an inflated view of ourselves, of how good we really are, how gifted we really are. I remember when I was younger, um, I was profoundly arrogant. Now I'm just a proud man still trying to work on humility. But then I was just proud, no humility looking. And I remember saying to my dad, you know, I, I can understand why God chose me. Just set it out there. Just popped it out. What a proud statement. No awareness of the cross, just how incredible the Lord is. An inflated view of myself. It's appalling. But when you study your human sinfulness, so The Enemy Within by Chris Lungard, wonderful book. Broken Down House by Paul Tripp. You are, you are chopped down to your true size as you realise, oh my, before the Lord, I am pathetic. It is a wonder that he chose me. And it is totally despite myself. We study the attributes of God, human sinfulness, and then the cross. 
John Stott says the following about the cross wonderfully. He says, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin that I am bearing, your curse that I am suffering, your debt that I am paying, and your death that I am dying. Nothing in history then or the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. For all of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary, and it is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. And we so do. It's very difficult when we gather around the cross and we see what Christ has done for us to then emerge from that moment and go, what about me? Why are they not noticing me? Why are they not thanking me? The two things don't take place. When we gather at the cross, it, it has a unique ability to cut us down to our true size. So when we emerge from it, all we want to do is not draw attention to ourselves, but draw attention to him. Look at him. Behold him. Give all the glory to him. And so I want to encourage you when you're reading the Bible to pay attention to the cross. Every, every word ultimately whispers the name of Christ. So when you're reading the Old Testament, pay attention to where it is leading and then pay particular attention to the Gospels and the letters that unpack the cross. A few books then. The Cries of Calvary by Edwin Lutzer. A wonderful book which just tours you through the seven cries of the cross. It just had a profound effect on my life. It's one of those books that I just read every year because I enjoy it. Just reminding me of this is who he is. This is what he's done for me. This is what it cost for me to be saved. Living the Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. Just a life-defining book that I'd encourage you to get that really sums up what gospel DNA is all about. And then also The Cross of Christ by John Stott, a wonderful book, again, that helps you to tour Calvary. Listen, humility is cultivated when we assess ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So pay attention to God's Holiness and our sinfulness and delight in the cross and humility is what will come. And then number three, the third way you can cultivate humility in your life, I want to encourage you to do all you can to pull other believers into your life. Do all you can to pull other believers into your life. And this is one of those very practical things that is, I think, where the rubber hits the road for so many people in terms of cultivating humility and putting to death pride. See, in all reality, I think one of the greatest challenges of pride is that it proudly deceives us into thinking that everything we see before us, we see with 20-20 vision. And so when it comes to our lives, I see it clearly. When it comes to our ponderings, no problem. When it comes to decisions, even major decisions, I got this. I can see clearly now. The rain is gone. I'm sweet. Just leave me be. In our pride, we are deceived into thinking that all you need for life and godliness is right here. And you can see with crystal clarity what needs to be done. And yet when we tremble at God's word, you realize that's simply not the case. In Proverbs 12, verse 15, we read, the way of the fool seems right to him. But a wise man listens to advice. So often in Sydney and in our Western, our Western culture, we, we are taught that the older you get, true maturity is total independence. 
Whereas the Bible says total maturity is interdependence. You're going to need others. You know that heart that you have that is for the Lord? It is. That is the spirit. But the old self in there is still deceitful above all things. So sometimes you'll think it's God and it's not. It's the devil. And you're going to find it really hard to discern between the two sometimes. What do you do? Well, God gives you a gift. Each other. Each other to help you work that out. What am I meant to do? Why is it that in our lives, you know, even maybe as I'm talking about pride today, we can see pride in other people's lives with pinpoint perfection. I can see it. But the plank that we have in our own eye that's slapping everyone in the face, we can't see that at all. So we need others, others to help us see, hey, listen, thanks for getting the speck out, but if you be aware that this is log hanging out of your eye, we need others in our lives. The way of the fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. The theme of the Bible then is you need others. Proverbs 1 verse 5, let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. Proverbs 11 verse 14, for lack of guidance a nation falls. But many advisors make victory sure. Proverbs 13, verse 10, wisdom is found in those who take advice. Proverbs 15, verse 22, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. My friends, I want to encourage you, then one of the ways you put to death pride and cultivate humility is to bring other people into your life. So when it comes to your walk with the Lord, bring other people into your life, assuming I doubt I see my sin with pinpoint clarity. So help me. Where do you see cream cheese on my face? Where do you see logs in my eyes? Help me, because I'm sure I ain't going to be seeing it all. And when it comes to these decisions in my life, listen, I'm not assuming that everything that I feel or sense is just automatically the spirit. And so I want to know what you think. So listen, we're thinking about, we're thinking about going into foster care. It's going to be a huge change on our life and on our family. And just want to know your perspective. Things we could be thinking about, things we could be asking ourselves. What's your counsel? Hey, we're thinking about moving away. It's going to be about an hour and a half away, maybe two hours. So I suppose we'll just be moving. And we haven't found a church there or nothing. But, you know, I think it's going to be fine. We've really sensed God in it. Or we're thinking about moving. It's about two hours away. But you know, my heart could be deceitful above all things. And so any questions, thoughts, give me your perspectives. We want to make a wise decision before the Lord. We want to know his smile and gaze. We want to know his plan for our life. What do you, what do you think? Things I could be thinking about. Hey, I'm thinking about getting married. We've known each other for a good eight weeks now. It's been a special eight weeks. And we're, and we're getting married. And I think God's in it. He's opened the door. So I got engaged. Or... Hey, we're thinking about getting married and, you know, my heart could be deceitful and I've met this girl and I really love her. I think I love her. And How can I do this wisely? How can I honour the Lord? What things should I be thinking through? Help me. I, I want to gain counsel because the Bible's clear again and again and again. With many advisors, people succeed. And as an expression of putting to death pride, which means I think I see everything clearly, I want to clothe myself with humility, which is understanding I don't. So give me your perspective. You see, the prize then is not only better decisions. The prize is, this is the one to whom I will look. One who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. 
who in humility seeks to apply this and learn from its wisdom and apply it in, in all of life. My friends, I want you to be that one to whom he looks. I want you to receive the special assistance and favour and grace from God. But more importantly, he wants you to receive that. Which is why this is here. So may we pursue humility in our life. May we always be a church that truly treasures humility and pursues it. And as a result, may our church always display the wonderful beauty and splendour of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the way it informs us and helps us and aids us each and every step of the way. Lord, would you help us to put pride to death? And would you help us to clothe ourselves with humility? Lord, I thank you for the gentleness in which you address this in Isaiah chapter 66. I thank you that your heart is wanting to ensure that your gaze is drawn not in opposition to pride, but your gaze is drawn to humility, where there can be grace and favour and assistance. Lord, you are so kind to us. So may it be our story, and may all glory go to you. Amen.